Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. Luke chapter 10. This is going to be a familiar story, whether you have spent time in church or whether you have not spent time in church, you are probably familiar with a character by the name of the Good Samaritan. He doesn't even have a name, a formal name, he just kind of has this title and you kind of know him by that title. He is the Good Samaritan and again, whether you know the story, whether you've heard the story or not, you probably heard it in a context where the Good Samaritan was a good guy. Like this is the kind of guy that we want to try to be like. And this story is found right in the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke is one of the Gospels. It's one of the eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. And so in just a moment, we're going to read this story together in Luke chapter 10. So keep your place there and hang on to that. We'll we'll look at that in just a moment. When my wife and I first got married, we moved into our very first house together, and it was a small home that was built on a farm in Southern California, and the house was about 650 square feet in size. You say, John, how do you know that? Because I literally took a tape measure one one evening, and I measured every room, and I added them up because it was so small, I couldn't believe how small it was. It included the closets. 650 square feet was this entire home. And some church members owned the farm, and there were a couple of homes that were on this farm, and so uh, they were renting them out to young families, young couples, young staff members that worked there at the church, and so we were able to get into one of these homes, and it was really reasonably priced, and Amy and I enjoyed that as kind of our first experience together as a newly married couple living on this farm. And they would rotate alfalfa and onions throughout the year to kind of rejuvenate the soil. And so we enjoyed coming out and smelling those onions when it was onion season or seeing the green alfalfa when it was alfalfa season. But here's the thing about that particular house. We didn't have any neighbors. The closest we ever got to a neighbor was one night I pulled up and there was a coyote in my driveway (laughs) 10 feet away from the front door. And so that was the closest we ever got to neighbors because we were just surrounded on every side by fields. And we loved it. It was great. We loved the the seclusion and just kind of being away from town, being out by ourselves. Well, we only stayed there for about three or four months, and then we bought a home in town. And so when we moved in town, we also got neighbors. So when we moved into that house in town, we had a neighbor on either side, and on one side we had a dog neighbor. Now, I don't particularly have any problem with dogs this morning, so if you're a dog person, I don't mean to offend in any way, but this particular dog person had the type of dogs that would stay up late at night when we were trying to sleep and just bark all night long at everything that was going on. And these dogs were also the type of dogs that we got a little nervous about walking by because one time they charged one of our friends and she came running into the house screaming because this dog dog was just bolting after her. So on one side, we've got this dog neighbor, with these ferocious dogs. And on the other side, we have like the typical perfect American suburban family. The 2.5 kids, the brand new cars, the big house, toys, everything seemed to be perfect. They were always in a good mood. They were on the other side of us. Those were our first experience with neighbors. 
Now, there's different types of neighbors. Maybe you have some of these neighbors. There's, there's the holiday neighbor. Right now, the holiday neighbor, if you have one of these neighbors, they have like a 15-foot skeleton in their front yard as they're anticipating Halloween coming up. But don't worry. In a couple of weeks, the skeleton will be taken down and a 22-foot tall blow-up Rudolph will be put in its place. These are the holiday neighbors. They love to celebrate. They love to deck out for the holidays. Maybe you have this kind of neighbor. Another kind of neighbor is the reclusive neighbor. Now, the only reason you know that the reclusive neighbor actually lives inside the house is because on Mondays, the trash can ends up at the curb, and on Tuesday, it disappears. You don't see them take it down. You don't see them take it up. But clearly, somebody's got to live in that home. They're just reclusive. They kind of stay to themselves. Well, then there's the manicured neighbor. This is the guy whose lawn looks as good as one of the golf courses in Scottsdale. Everything is picture perfect. Everything is in its place. Well, then there's also the Amazon neighbor. Maybe you have one of these neighbors. Maybe you are this neighbor. And about every other day, that, that bluish-gray truck pulls up in front of the house, and there's always those packages on the front porch. And there's all these different types of neighbors. And maybe you love your neighbors. Maybe you get along with your neighbors. Maybe you've got a neighbor that falls into one of these categories. Maybe you've got a neighbor that tends to be a little annoying or kind of does some things that you don't appreciate. But here's the thing about neighbors. You cannot choose the type of neighbor that you have. But you can choose the type of neighbor that you are. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, we are going to find that Jesus is really laying out that principle for us in pretty plain and simple terms. And so today what I want to do for you and for us this morning is I want to introduce you to an unexpected friend, an unexpected neighbor. And so if you have your Bible open or if you have it turned on, look at Luke chapter 10. And I want you to keep your Bibles open. This is just what we do at City Point Church. We, we walk through texts together. And so we're going to spend the next 30 or 40 minutes just right here in this text, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal Life. Now we've jumped right into a scene here. So let me set the scene. Jesus is a rabbi, he's a teacher, and he has a group of listeners and if you will, seated around him, and one of them is a man that is called a lawyer. This is not a lawyer like we would think today, who is going to court and standing for people. This is this is a student, a scholar, a specialist in the law. So this lawyer is seated, listening to Jesus, and this lawyer stands, and it says that he wants to put Jesus to the test. So immediately we know that this man's motives are combative. He's not interested in getting along and just kind of playing nice here. He wants to try to prove and to try to test what Jesus is saying, and he asks this question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you know anything about eternal life, the question in and of itself is flawed because you cannot do anything to inherit eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. It is something God gives to us by his own grace in response to our faith. And so, but this man is trying to prove, he's trying to test Jesus. So he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus says to him in verse 26, what is written in the law? You're a lawyer, you're a scholar, a student of the law. How do you read it? How do you interpret it? Verse 27, 
And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. By the way, that's the correct answer. Jesus asks a question, but it's a different question than the man asked. He asks a question, what does the law say? And the man answers correctly. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He quotes Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he answers correctly, and Jesus says to him in verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will have a a good and an abundant life. Follow the law. Well, verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? His follow-up question is an attempt to find a loophole. A loophole is an ambiguity in the law. He's trying to find kind of a way around what the law is requiring of him. And I heard about a girl recently who found a loophole. Actually, her parents did. When she was 10 years old, they signed her up for the Krispy Kreme Birthday Kids Club. And at the time, when they signed her up for the Krispy Kreme Birthday Kids Club, Krispy Kreme did not ask for her birth year. So for the last 20 years, this girl has been receiving a dozen donuts on her birthday, even though she's like approaching the age of 30. She found a loophole in the system. In other words, she's using the system for her advantage. That's what this guy wants to do. He wants to find the loophole. He can use the system to his advantage. In other words, if Jesus will define who a neighbor is, he will know who a neighbor is not. And implicit in his question is his belief that there is somebody and there are people out there that don't qualify as his neighbor. There are people out there that he is not responsible to show the law to, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus is going to do a Jesus thing here. And he's going to tell a story. In response to this man's question, who is my neighbor? Jesus, who's the master teacher, is going to tell a story to help this man understand what he's missing. So look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest came, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, a couple of things before we finish this story. There's a road here. This man, this weary traveler, is traveling down this road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This is a road that was about 18 miles long. It was a road that descended about a half a mile over those 18 miles. And it was a road that was narrow. It was a road that was surrounded by desert. It was a road that was difficult to travel. And it was a road that was very dangerous. Most people knew that if you're going to travel this road, don't travel it yourself because there could be bandits. There could be people who could rob you, who could steal from you, who could do harm to you, which is exactly what happened. And so we're introduced to three initial characters or groups of characters right at the beginning of this story. First, there's this traveling man. We don't know much about him. He's not given a name. The context of the story leads us to believe that he is a Jewish man, and that's going to be important. We don't know where he's coming from or where he's going to. We don't know why he's traveling alone. Some of us could step back from this story and say, well, he kind of got himself into this situation. He shouldn't have traveled that road by himself. 
But regardless, here he is, this traveling man. The second group of people is this group of senseless robbers. These bandits who find him and they rob him and they beat him and they leave him naked and half dead. And time will do the rest. If he's half dead when they leave, it's really just a matter of time. But the scripture says, by chance, a third group comes by. First, it is a priest, and then it is a Levite, and we'll call this the religious establishment. The priests were those who mediated the relationship between God and men in the temple. The Levites were the workers in the temple. Most likely, both of these men would have been returning from Jerusalem back to Jericho after having done some religious duties. They are quite literally on their way home from church. Like, they're still singing the final worship song, right? I mean, they're still remembering what God did and what they learned and what happened and what they experienced, and they're on their way home. And they come to this man, beaten, left half dead in the road. And what do they do? What do they both do? They pass by on the other side. Now, before we get angry at these guys and start shaming them and saying, well, you know, they shouldn't do that. They should know better. How many times do we do that? How many times do I do that? It's Sunday morning. Church is over. Amy goes home early with the boys, and she'll text me, and she'll say, hey, can you stop by Aldi and pick up some cheese? Thankful that Aldi is right here. Praise God for Aldi on Southern now. We can stop at Aldi on the way home from church. Sure, I'll stop by Aldi and pick up some cheese, and I'll bring it home for you for Sunday afternoon lunch and as I'm walking into Aldi there's somebody that in my mind is doesn't fit into my category doesn't fit into into my lifestyle choices or somebody maybe that is homeless or maybe somebody that I could even say got themselves into their own situation and what do I do I just kind of look the other way and pass around and go back into Aldi and get what I need to get and get on my way so many times it's those of us who are religious who tend to be least like Jesus this is the story. Well, it takes an unexpected turn in verse 33. And I want you to see this because if you were sitting in that circle or in that, that lesson time with Jesus and you were listening to this story that he was telling, if you were the lawyer, you would have expected that the very next character would have been a lay Jew. Just another, just a Jew who didn't work in the temple, but just a good, upstanding, law-abiding Jewish person. That's what you would have expected, but that's not who Jesus puts into the story next. Jesus says in verse 33, as he continues the story, but a Samaritan. Now, you and I sit in this room, and that doesn't mean very much for us this morning, but racial sirens would have been going off in the mind of the lawyer. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he, the beaten and bruised man, was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend I will repay you when I come back. The story's over. Jesus turns back to the lawyer now and asks this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Well, he's cornered the lawyer, hasn't he? So the lawyer answers him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go 
then do likewise. You see what Jesus did there? He took the man's question, who is my neighbor, and he inverted it. Jesus never actually answered the man's question. He didn't define the parameters of his neighbor. Instead, he defined the parameters of what it means to be a neighbor. So instead of who is my neighbor, Jesus asked, who proved to be a neighbor? And so the juxtaposition of this lawyer and his question against Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan paints a vivid picture of the kind of neighbor that loves like Jesus. So if you're in the habit of writing things down and keeping notes, I'm going to give you a big idea. I do this every week. It's a statement that sits over top of this portion of this story that we're going to unpack for just the next couple of minutes. This is the big idea. A true neighbor demonstrates love like Jesus. A true neighbor. Which one proved to be a neighbor? A true neighbor demonstrates love like Jesus. So what kind of love is this? What does this love look like? Well, there are three demonstrations that we see in the life of the Good Samaritan that are demonstrations of Jesus' love. So it's going to look like this. Love like Jesus demonstrates. Number one, love like Jesus demonstrates an unprejudiced compassion. I want you to see it again in verse 33 as we unpack this. But a Samaritan, Jesus says, as he journeyed, came to where he, the beaten and bruised man, was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Samaritans, they were half Jews. They weren't, they weren't purebred, so to speak. They were, they were part Jew, part Gentile. As a matter of fact, when, when the Jews wanted to throw and hurl the worst racial slur that they could think of at Jesus, they said to him in John 8, 48, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They literally put in the same category demons and Samaritans when they're trying to insult Jesus. And so there were incredible tensions and and, and racial prejudices between Jews and Samaritans. So the fact that Jesus chooses a Samaritan as the one who shows mercy on the Jew would have just flipped their world upside down. But it was an unprejudiced compassion that this Samaritan shows. So the Samaritan's compassion overcame society's predetermined categories. That text in verse 33 says that he saw him. You know what's interesting is that the priest... And the Levite both saw the man. But it's the next statement that makes the difference. He saw him and had compassion on him. His eyes affected his heart. It wasn't enough that he just saw the man and then said, I'm not sure I can deal with that right now. I've got to go into Aldi and get my cheese. And pass by on the other side. That's not what he did. He saw the man in his need, in his brokenness, in, in, in his tatteredness on the side of the road. And he stopped to help him. How often do we not help people because we have been hardened by prejudices? Predetermined categories, and maybe we've set up the categories, maybe society has set up the categories. Quite frankly, maybe we were raised a certain way, and the way we were raised defined those categories. But how often do we not stop and show compassion because we are being hardened by our prejudices? Maybe it's someone that appears to be homeless and we sort of put them in this category, but we're in this category over here, so those are different categories. 
Or maybe it's somebody who has a different color to their skin, and we would never verbalize it. But because they look a certain way and we look a different way, those prejudices harden our heart toward compassion. Or maybe it's different economic brackets and we see somebody and we think, boy, they're, they're, in a different, they're in a different place than I am financially and I don't know that I can really show them compassion or we allow our heart to be hardened towards them or maybe sometimes it's demographically, it's that person's older or that person's younger and all of a sudden because of some of those categories and those preconceived prejudices, our heart is hardened towards compassion and we don't move towards them. And what we're saying is I have nothing in common with them so I can't show compassion to them. Meanwhile, there are droves of people laying on the side of the road who've been beaten and bruised and who are left half dead. I read some statistics this week that really gripped my heart. One of them was this. This source says that the average person living on the streets goes three to six months without being looked in the eyes because all of us are just looking the other way as we pass by. Another statistic says that one in two adults report serious feelings of loneliness and isolation. One in two, 50%. Take the room, cut it down the middle. One side, everybody's feeling isolated and lonely. The other side, everybody's feeling okay. 50%. Another statistic, according to this source, suicide is the second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 14 children. Now I know there's a lot of potential reasons and maybe there are a lot of solutions that we could offer, but what if one of them, what if we just started as followers of Jesus, what if we just started not just seeing but also having compassion? Not allowing predetermined categories and prejudices that we place and impose on people to stop us from actually showing people compassion. This Samaritan demonstrated love like Jesus by showing an unprejudiced compassion because that's how Jesus loves. Jesus did not come for people that were just like him. Jesus came for all of us who were nothing like him. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were isolated. We were separated. We did not deserve his love, and yet he came anyway. Ephesians 2 verses 13 and 14 say, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, verse 19 says, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Jesus, we could say, had every right to just sort of pass by on the other side and leave us for dead on the side of the road, but he didn't. And though we were nothing like him because of our sin, though we were nothing like him because he is completely otherly in his holiness, yet he came down and became a man so that we could be brought near to him. We live life like we're at a masquerade party where we put our masks on because we don't want to be seen or what we want to be seen as is the costumed version of ourself. And so we walk into a church like this one this morning with a mask on because we don't want people to see who we really are. And here's the fear. If God really saw me for who I am, he would treat me like the Levite or the priest. And he would pass around on the other side. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here because a friend invited you. And you thought, well, if this... 
if I don't go to this church and appease this friend, they're just going to keep on asking me, so I'm just going to go. And here you are, but you're masked up. You're, you don't want God to see who you really are because you're afraid that if God really saw who you were, he would not fully love you. But Jesus did not come to give a partial prejudiced love. Jesus is the one who fully sees us, fully knows us, and fully loves us. The kind of love that Jesus gives is an unprejudiced compassion. Love like Jesus demonstrates this. But number two, we see in the story of this good Samaritan, love like Jesus also demonstrates an unselfish care. An unselfish care, I want you to see it in verse 34. He, this good Samaritan, went to him, this bruised and battered, weary traveler, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. I want you to notice he didn't just see and he wasn't just moved with compassion, but that compassion actually led him to do something to leverage his own comforts for the benefit of this man's care. The comfort of his resources. He pours in oil and wine. Those were limited and expensive resources to come by. The wine would have been antiseptic. The oil would have been something to ease the pain. And this man takes what was his and what was costly of his own resources and he willingly gives them, leveraging those comforts for this man's care. But he also leverages the comfort of his transportation. He sets him on his own animal. I love the picture here of how this Samaritan comes down off the animal so the weary traveler could be lifted up to ride on the animal. But then he's also leveraging the comfort of his plans. He brought him to an inn. I have a strong suspicion that the inn was not part of that man's plans for the day. As a matter of fact, inns in this day were not like our best westerns with the hot breakfast or the Double Tree Hotel with those gooey chocolate chip cookies. That's not what these inns were like. As a matter of fact, you didn't go to one of these inns unless you were in trouble, in danger, or you absolutely had to. These were places of ill repute. These were few and far between. They weren't very comfortable. They weren't very nice. But the Samaritan willingly goes there because this man needs some care. He needs some rest. He needs some attention. He needs some help. Oftentimes, what do we do? Instead of leveraging our comforts for the care of other people, we protect our comforts. We protect the comfort of our home because to open up that home to our neighbors or to strangers or to other people would cause that home to be a little messy, be a little disheveled. Boy, we protect the comfort of our schedule because everything on my schedule is helping me get done the things that I want to do. And we don't want to leverage that schedule for the care of somebody else. Or we protect the comfort of our budget and our finances because, well, I've got things to save for and I've got things that I've got to buy. But what if God is calling us as people who are followers of Jesus to live like Jesus, and to leverage our comforts for other people's care. That's what this man did. He was caring like Jesus, because care like Jesus leverages comforts for other people. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this about Jesus, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, you could say comfortable, 
Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's leveraging his wealth and his status and his righteousness. He is leveraging those things for people who had nothing to offer to him. There's a powerful image in verse 34 when this Samaritan gets down off of his horse, gets down off of that animal, and then lifts up that weary traveler to ride in his place. Because the Samaritan quite literally trades places with this weary traveler. And is that not the gospel? That God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we, through his righteousness might be made right with God. Jesus took our sin. Jesus took our brokenness. Jesus took our shame so that we could have his righteousness. He took our place so that we could receive his place. He came low so we could be lifted high. My kids have gotten to the point where they're really good at bargaining a trade. Right now what they're doing is they're trading sticks of gum with their brothers I'll give you a stick of gum if you do my chores. I'll give you a stick of gum if you give me a turn on the iPad. I hear it. Like this is like the new thing that's going on in our house right now. Is trying to trade and leverage here so that they can get something in return for what they're trading. But here's what I found with my kids. Most of the time, they're wanting to get more than they give. They're wanting to leverage that trade so that they walk out and they, they've got, they've got, they're on top of that particular bargain. But when Jesus made a trade with us, he wasn't trying to get out on top and see what he could come out with and see what he could get away with and see how much he could end up with in the end. But instead, he gave it all. He came low so we could be lifted high. Love like Jesus is an unprejudiced compassion. Love like Jesus demonstrates an unselfish care. And then number three, love like Jesus demonstrates an unconditional generosity. An unconditional generosity. We see it in verse 35. And the next day, you know what that means, right? He stayed at the inn with this man. Cleared his schedule. Didn't end up going wherever he needed to go. And the next day, the Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this Samaritan covers the totality of the debt that this man would owe for his stay. Two denarii, that's equivalent to two days wage, is what he pays up front. But then, you know what else he does, is he opens up a tab. He says, hey, I'm going to leave. Here's two days wage for whatever you need for this man. But by the way, if you spend money over and above this to care for this man that I, that I only met yesterday, if you spend anything over and above this, just open up a tab, put it on my tab, and when I come back through, because I'm going to come back through, I'll take care and close that tab. I will pay for that man's needs. I will pay for whatever it takes to get this man back to health and to get him on his way. Unconditional generosity. It is a generosity that doesn't attach strings. It is a generosity that does not say, well, I will cover up to this amount, and then I hope he's got good insurance after that. It's not saying, well, I, I will cover, but keep records so that he can pay me back. There are no strings attached to the generosity of this Samaritan. 
And I wonder this morning, what conditions do we put on how much we love? We love, but we put a cap on it. We put a ceiling on it. Well, I'll love up to this much. I'll love so long as that person is lovable. I'll love so long as that person does something in return for me. I'll love so long as that love is easy. I'll love so long as that love is convenient. And we put conditions and we put a ceiling on our love for others. But that's not the way that Jesus loves. When Jesus loves, he loves generously, willing to pay the highest price. Scripture says that greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. Do you know who said that? Jesus. And do you know the next statement that he makes in John 15? Right after he says that in verse 13, he says, you are my friends. The greatest demonstration and expression of love, the greatest measure of sacrifice is to lay down your life for the life of somebody else. An unconditional generosity that Jesus gave so that we could go free. The cross where Jesus bled and died is God's demonstration of unconditional generosity. Which means there's no sin too great, there's no sinner too far gone, there's no shame too deep, there's no past too broken, there's no wanderer too lost. Jesus' death was an all-inclusive payment for an all-inclusive debt. There's nothing worse than getting to an all-inclusive resort only to find that some of the restaurants and some of the amenities are not covered. When you check out at the end. Listen, when Jesus paid the debt of our sin, he didn't leave something left on the tab. It was an all-inclusive payment. When he stretched out his arms and died on that cross, and then when he said, it is finished, he meant it. It's accomplished. It's done. It's finished for you and for me. There are no conditions. There are no strings attached to this. All that he asks is that you would come by faith and believe. What are you trusting this morning? Who are you trusting this morning? Are you trusting yourself? Are you trusting a religious tradition that you were raised in? Are you, are you trusting just spiritualism and just this sense of, I believe in a, in a higher power? Yes, there is a higher power, but there are a lot of different higher powers. But there is one power above all the powers and one king above all the kings. So who's, who, who are you trusting? Who are you resting in? Who are you believing in for the forgiveness of your sin? Jesus asks nothing in return other than faith in what he's already accomplished. So Jesus tells this story about this unlikely friend. And then he says to the lawyer, which of these proved to be a neighbor? He answered him rightly, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus makes this statement, you go and do likewise. Now I can't help but wonder if Jesus is purposefully creating a dilemma. Go and do likewise? Like, you want me to do that? Every time? Without fail? You want me to love perfectly like Jesus every single time that I come across somebody that is unlovely in my estimation? 
In fact, if you try to love as Jesus is telling this man to love, as if it's just a box to check or a rule to follow, you are going to find that you fail time and time and time again. And here's the point that I believe Jesus is trying to make here when he says to this man, go and do likewise. That man is going to think in his heart, I can't. I don't know that I can do that perfectly every single time. And I wonder if maybe that's the point. Because in order to love like Jesus, you must first be loved by Jesus. We are not the source of this love. We are not the ones saying, I am the source of love and now I will go love from the source of me. No, we are, we are conduits through which the love of Christ flows through us to other people. So to go and do likewise requires that we would be filled with the love of Christ and then love as we have been loved. And so for this lawyer, maybe there's a bigger question that he needs to consider. Has he received the love of Christ? Because to love as you've been loved means that you must first be loved. And to receive that love, that unconditional love that Christ offers and demonstrated for us. And so I began with a statement that today I want to introduce you to an unexpected friend. But really, I've introduced you to two. The first is a man who goes by the title Good Samaritan. But the second is a man who fully embodied what it means to be a Good Samaritan. And that's a man by the name of Jesus. An unexpected friend who came and lived the perfect life that you and I never could, though we often try and died the death that we deserve because there is a penalty on our sin, but then rose victorious three days later so that he could gift to us that eternal life. He earned it because we couldn't, so that now he can give it so that we can receive it. And so this is the friend. This is the one that we see. This is the one that is foreshadowed in the Good Samaritan. It's actually pointing to the one who's telling the story, who will one day go and accomplish, even for the lawyer, what that lawyer could not accomplish for himself. So I have two questions for you this morning. We call these learning to live. My first question is this. Do you know Jesus? Do you, do you know him? Do you really know him? I'm not asking, do you, do you know some facts about him? I'm not asking, could you, could you recite and recall some information about him? I'm not asking if you've gone to church and maybe been a part of Sunday school or done some of these activities. I'm asking, do you know this person relationally? Because Jesus did not come to give religion. He came to give himself. Do you know Jesus? We ask this question a lot around here at City Point Church. Because people walk into churches, and they will walk into churches, and they've walked into churches all across our country and around the globe this morning on a Sunday. And they think that because they walked into a building that that makes them a Christian. To be a Christian means you are a follower of Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus, you must first enter into a relationship with him. So do you know Jesus relationally, not just intellectually, but relationally, do you know him? In our story, there's a weary traveler. He did nothing, he earned nothing, and he accomplished nothing. And the reality is, you and I are the weary traveler this morning. But there's another man in this story who did everything, who gave everything, and who accomplished everything, 
and it was the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is our Good Samaritan. He's the one who will come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so if you have not yet put personal faith and trust in the finished, completed work of Jesus for the salvation and the forgiveness of your sin, friend, I invite you today, trust in Jesus. Don't trust in me. Don't trust in a church. Don't trust in a religion. Don't trust in a system. Trust in a person. And if today you're here and you've never done this, you've never put true saving faith in Jesus, then right now I invite you, right now in this moment, trust Jesus. In your heart of hearts, just say, Jesus, I believe. I believe. I believe that you are the Son of God. And I believe that you died on a cross to cover my sin. I believe that you have traded places with me. You took my sin so that I could receive your righteousness. And by simple faith, friend, that's all it is. By simple faith, you can know Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've just now done that, you've just now in this moment for the first time said yes to Jesus, then when the service is over, would you be sure to stop by that desk in the lobby and stop by one of the leaders there and just tell them, I said yes to Jesus today. And they've got a book that they would like to give to you that will explain a little bit more about this brand new relationship that you have in knowing Jesus. Do you know him? Trust him today. But the second question is this, for those of us who know him, do you show Jesus? Do you show him? Yes, you know him, but are you actually living a life that demonstrates the love of Jesus? Are you showing him to that friend, to that neighbor, to that coworker, to that family member that you just haven't really been getting along with for several decades now? Are you looking for opportunities to love them like Jesus has loved you? It's not enough to know Jesus. We must now, through the power of Christ, show Jesus to the world around us. The takeaway of this story is not go be a good Samaritan. The takeaway is go live like Jesus. Allow his love to flow through you. Allow your life to be the conduit so that when people come in contact with you this week, when they're, when they're sitting in class with you, when they're at work with you, when they interact with you as your neighbor, like physically as your neighbor, that they're experiencing through you a love that is different. A love that is not like what they often find seen and displayed in the world today that is conditional. But instead it is an unconditional love. And now all of a sudden they'll come to you and they'll say, why do you love like that? And you'll be able to say, it's because I've been loved like that. I have been loved by one who has shown me an unprejudiced compassion, who has shown me an unselfish care, and who has shown me an unconditional generosity. A true neighbor is one who loves like Jesus. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for the story. The story that Jesus told that is a reflection of the heart of God. Lord, I want to pray first for that person here this morning and maybe they're wrestling with you maybe they've got the mask on and they're afraid to take it off they're afraid to show you who they really are and yet they don't realize that you already know 
you've already loved them. You've already died to cover their sin. I pray that they would stop fighting and stop resisting and that they would just trust Jesus today. I want to pray for the one who this morning did trust you and they put faith in you for the first time. God, I pray that they would grow and flourish in this new relationship and that they would get integrated into a, into a faith community, even like what we have here at City Point Church, so that they can grow and flourish in that new relationship. But then, God, I want to pray for those this morning, those of us who already know you, that this week we would look for opportunities and ways to show you, to show that kind of love that is not a demonstration of what we can do, but a demonstration of what we have received from you. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, Go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.